Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Barry Creamer. Dr. Creamer has served as president of Criswell College since 2014, after spending a combined 10 years as both a member of the faculty and as the vice president of academic affairs. A trained philosopher and historian, Dr. Creamer holds a BA in English from Baylor University, an MDiv from Criswell College, and a PhD in Humanities from the University of Texas at Arlington. For more than 20 years, Dr. Creamer pastored churches across Texas, and he continues to preach conferences, teach lay audiences, and serve as interim pastor for churches in transition. Dr. Creamer has spent over a decade hosting his own podcast, Coffee with Creamer, a program covering relevant issues in ethics, ministry, and worldview, and has served on the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. His writing has been featured on numerous print and electronic platforms. Without further ado, Dr. Barry Creamer. Uh, Hey, I'm uh, just so pleased to see everybody here, and it is our our convocation, I mean, it's a chapel service, just regular chapel service, but it is our convocation. So this is our invitation, not only for the Lord to bless what we're going to be doing this semester, but for you to invite the Lord to sort of govern what you're doing this semester as well, so that he's the one who establishes the work of our hands. So less of a sermon today, more of a devotional commitment from Psalm 63. Sometimes devotionals break into sermons. I don't, I, I'm, I'm, my plan today, though, is simple to go through Psalm 63 with you, and then uh, to take a few minutes at the end of my devotional time for the faculty members to be able to pray with you, uh, because we just want you to encounter the Lord while you're here and to experience what it means to know that his presence is with you through this whole semester. So Psalm 63, and if you're wondering why I picked this psalm, it's because it comes right after Psalm 62. Uh, And I was in Psalm 62 on Sunday at Tate Springs Baptist Church in Arlington, where a couple of y'all are from, Uh, and I had a great time there. And I was in Psalm 61 the week before that at Plymouth Park Baptist Church in Irving, uh, where I've been helping them some lately. And so I've uh, gone all the way through, I'm going through the Psalms completely, and so far I've gone through 62, and now uh, I'm taking a first look at Psalm 63 with you, meaning last night we looked at it. So Psalm 63, here we are, the superscript. When we, and, and we'll take this psalm, it's very direct. We'll take this psalm, the organization is super simple. You'll see how it relates within itself. It talks about our soul and our lips and our hands, and it talks about us in terms that are related directly through and to the Messiah. But every psalm begins, most of the psalms, not every psalm, most of the psalms begin with a superscript. It's not numbered, but it is part of the text, and it gives us the context Uh, within which we're supposed to understand what the message of the psalm is. And so here, it is a psalm of David. And again, for us, that just means, oh, that cool guy who killed Goliath and cut up his head and held it up and took, you know, refused Saul's suit and, you know, chased the Philistines away and uh, won all the battles and, you know, all that. 
But he's the Messiah. You know, he is the Old Testament Messiah. He's the anointed one. When you read the second Psalm, he's already the anointed one. And I'm not saying he redeems us or that he was sinless or that his blood is our salvation or that he rose from the dead. In fact, the very point of Peter's message where he's relating Jesus to David in that messianic fashion is to say, we've got David's grave over there, but Jesus is the one who actually rose from the dead, the one where the grave could not contain him. So obviously, Obviously, Jesus is our Messiah, but when you talk about the Messiah in the Old Testament, it's David. He's the one. That's why Jesus is the son of David. And for uh, somebody reading this psalm in a synagogue or in worship together with their family at Passover, whenever it was, for someone to read this psalm and see the words, a psalm of David means this is a psalm prayed by our Messiah. He has prayed it for us. So when we come to the Psalms and we read them, and I've seen this in every single Psalm, but when we come to the Psalms, if we read them directly, we just convert them to our prayers. Or maybe even a little more weakly than that, we convert them into metaphors about things we've experienced in our lives that now we can give spiritual words to. And the Psalms are more than that. They are the prayers of the Messiah. And then they are given, because they're true about him, they're given to his people, to the congregation, to be able to sing together so that we know their truth through him and because we are in him as his people. So what's most important about a psalm like this is not that we just jump to translating the words to being about us, but that we understand what it meant for David to say these words, and then what that means for it to have been true about our Messiah, about Jesus himself, and then that we understand what it means to us. And so we want to read through it in that sense. So when this says a psalm of David, we already know it's a messianic psalm. They're basically all messianic. Psalms are first and most true about the Messiah, and then they are true about us. And again, I'll just reiterate, if you're, if you're just wrapping your mind around that and you haven't thought about it in the psalms, it's not a complicated claim. That's a really simple claim. But if you just haven't wrapped your mind around it, just pause and think how awkward it is when you're reading the Psalms as if they're simply your direct words to God and you say that phrase, and God, please reward me according to my deeds. Ooh, ooh, let me change the page, God. I actually want to read the next Psalm to you. I don't think that one is particularly pertinent to me, but because it's pertinent to the Messiah, it does relate to you. And then it's okay when you're praying it through him, right? So, okay, so you get the idea. But there's a second part to this superscript. Not only is it a Psalm of David, but it's a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And it's said in a way where you would assume everybody knows which time he was in the wilderness of Judah is being talked about. So let me emphasize this part too before, and I'm not taking this much time on everything, don't worry. But, but on this, it's important that we have the context in mind because it was given to us in the psalm so that when we're reading the words, Oh God, you're my God, I earnestly seek you and my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you like in a dry and weary land. We're supposed to know those are the words that David is sharing with us from when he was in the wilderness of Judah, whether he wrote it there or wrote it reminiscing about that. It is about that time that he was in the wilderness of Judah. And we have a couple of options for when that might have been. So we know, I mean, it could have been because David spends a lot of his time doing this. He's fleeing from people. 
David flees Saul when Saul is killing everybody in his conspiratorial mindset he thinks is set against him and he's destroyed all the priests of Nob. He's already had Doeg the Edomite fall on the priests of Nob and he's destroyed them and one of them has escaped and is running with David and David goes from there and he goes to the wilderness of Judea and while he's there David is going around places where the Philistines or some other group of people are marauding or, or attacking villages of Israelites who are in Judah and he's protecting them. David is still serving the people of Judah while the king of Israel, the people of Israel, while the king of Israel, Saul, is chasing him around in that wilderness. This is not a minor part of David's story. And as you read through the Psalms through the first 63, anyway, that I've gone through, it is surprising how many Psalms are about that period of time. This is a psalm written when Doeg the Edomite had done this or that. This is a psalm written when David feigned madness in Gath. This is a psalm written and so on. Over and over again, it's about the periods where David is fleeing. And then when you read the stories about David, you realize it's about the times David is fleeing because most of his life, David is fleeing somebody. That's, those are the things that, it, that are written about all the time. So the other option is that it's written about when David goes through the wilderness of Judea fleeing from Absalom when he crosses the Brook Kidron. And we know the whole story. And Absalom, his own son, and the people of Israel who have decided they'd rather have Absalom than the David who had freed them from so much oppression before. They would rather have Absalom now. They're willing to run David out of his throne city, and he is chased all the way down and finds some comfort at the Jordan River, which means he's passing through the wilderness of Judea on the way there. It could be that as well. We don't know which one it is, but my uh, best understanding of it, the one that I think is most intuitive in reading it is, that it's the one about Absalom. When Absalom has chased him out of Jerusalem and he's going through the wilderness of Judea down to the Jordan to find comfort there, and then he's going to end up coming back to his throne room anyway when Absalom is defeated. And the reason I think that is because of the way he's describing the glory and power of God as if it were centered in Jerusalem where his home was which would mean it comes after he's restored the ark to Jerusalem. So you're with me on where I think it's happening in the narrative. It doesn't change the overall content of the psalm if you read it the other way, as if he's fleeing from Saul before he's ever taken the throne. But I suspect, because of the way this first section of the psalm is written, that it's about Absalom, because David is able to reminisce about encountering the power and presence of God in a way that was associated with his presence in Jerusalem. Okay. So now, are we ready to look at the psalm? Okay. Verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul, and this is the word that drives everything through the psalm, my soul in this case is thirsting for you. My soul in the next case is going to be full because of you. And others are going to seek my soul in the last section of the psalm. So, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. So I'm lacking something right now and I need it. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So you can see how this relates to the wilderness of Judea. And I, I, want, I want to read to you the other three verses before I come back and emphasize this. But again, this is not a minor element either in the Messiah's life or in the life of Israel. It's not like, you know, on, on, on a rare occasion they find themselves wandering in the wilderness. It's fundamental 
to their identity as a people, and it's fundamental to the, to the Messiah's identity that he goes into the wilderness and that that's where he's chased. And how important that is, I guess I could emphasize to you by saying, you know, if I ask you about important moments in your life, you're not going to say, well, you know, I think it was really like Tuesday, two years ago, because nothing in particular happened that day. And it was a really easy day. You know, I, I, that was a really important day to me. Those days aren't even memorable. You don't even know what they were. What happened that day? I don't know. Nothing happened that day. Those are the days that are the, that are the way you want them to be. You woke up and did exactly what you planned all day, and the day ended, and you thought, eh, I had no problems today. And those days are nothing to you. It's the days in the wilderness. It's the days of transition. It's the liminal days that actually define our lives. And that's true about Israel, and it's true about the Messiah. And again, when you think about it in Israel, look, let me, let me read the other three verses. If you all stop interrupting, I can uh, stay on track. So in verse 2, David now, speaking in terms of being in the wilderness of Judea and his soul thirsting for a God who's no longer immediately present in the same way he was when he was in Jerusalem, he says so in verse 2, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So now he recalls, the Messiah recalls God's presence and obviously, he's going to have a reason to praise because of that. So in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And in each of these uh, sections, you'll see a reference to what's coming back out of our mouth. So I'm thirsty. I want to receive something, which means I recognize that I'm not in the same presence of God that I was before. And yet I remember the presence of God. And because of that, I have something in my lips to offer back to you. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up the palms of my hands. I will lift up my hands to you, raise them up in praise and acknowledgement of your presence anyway. So here's David, this messianic figure, the, the Messiah, talking about being out in the wilderness where it's dry and barren and being thirsty. And he was literally like this. is You, you don't have to go through some animal here, some image of a deer running and fleeing for God, as in the previous Psalms that have used that kind of imagery. This is David himself having to leave Jerusalem and go through the barren wilderness where it's dry and he's now thirsty, where he'd had an abundance before and was immediately in the presence of God. Now he has to recall the presence of God, but he does recall the presence, power, and glory of God, and in doing that, realizes that God's steadfast love has not abandoned him. His steadfast love is just as present as it was before, and so his lips are able to offer praise, and now out here in this barren wilderness where he's thirsty, he's able to lift up his hands before God. Now, again, it doesn't stop with David, obviously. Everything that happens with David as the Messiah in the Old Testament happens with Jesus in the New Testament in the same way, in some way, some similar way. And it's the same thing that happens to the people of Israel. He is their Messiah because he fulfills all the things that should have been and the things that were true about them, yet without sin, as, it, as we would say about Christ, obviously. So, but in this image, you know, David is in the wilderness. Israel had been in the wilderness. And if I can just remind you of these two episodes real quickly, 
Israel being in the wilderness, you know, after and when Moses is reminding them of how they'd gone through the wilderness when they left Egypt, this is not a minor episode in their history. This establishes who they are as a people. An entire generation passes away and then emerges in that wilderness as they come into the promised land. And in that wilderness, as they're preparing to enter the promised land just before Moses leaves them, he gives them a reminder of all the things that they had countered. This is the book of Deuteronomy, right? The second giving of the law. And he says, and he humbled, you know, Moses speaking to the congregation says, and remember, God humbled you and he let you hunger But he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's not strange language to it. We know it because of how it's quoted in the New Testament, which I'll refer to in a moment. The metaphor is not the same. They're not thirsty, but we know the stories where they are thirsty and they're seeking how God is going to provide drink for them while they're in the wilderness. The imagery points to the same truth, that they are in the wilderness. They're not in the place of comfort. They're not, they have not arrived at their destination yet, but they're trying to, and they haven't gotten there yet, and they don't know where to find God. And he's saying to them, but even in the wilderness, God provided for you, didn't he? He gave you not just something, he gave you manna. And in giving you the manna, he didn't just give you enough so that you could eat and go to bed at night and say, well, we're still, we still haven't arrived where God is, but at least we've got something to eat. The whole point was to say, and in giving you that manna, he taught you that you're not dependent on the material things of the world or the material presence as you perceive it of God. You are dependent on the word of God itself. You're dependent on him directly in his presence, the reality of his faithful covenant. His steadfast love. That's what we depend on. And so that's what they were encountering, and that's what this psalm points us to. So as the Messiah is praying this, and then he doesn't just write it down so that we can say, well, thank heavens the Messiah prayed that. He writes it down so that we will sing it together with him. That as the people of God, we'll understand that when we are out in the barren wilderness and our soul is thirsting for the presence of God, that we can remember when we have been in the presence, power, and glory of God and known that even now, while we're thirsty, even now we have reason to return praise for the abundance that he's provided for us. In the same way that Jesus is able to respond to the temptation when he's in the wilderness of Judea, coming from the Jordan up to Jerusalem in that same wilderness where he's confronted by Satan with the temptations and in the first temptation. He says, hey, oh, you're hungry. Well, just ask these stones to be turned to bread. Surely your father would give you that. And he says, don't you know? And then he just quotes Moses about the passage. I'm saying that to you not to say the image of thirst and hunger is identical, but to make the point that the lesson is the same. That when we are in the wilderness, we remember that it's the presence and power of God that matters. And in that, we have reason to praise God. And his covenant hasn't stumbled because of that. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, hold on. So verses 5 through 8, the second section. And this one, there's a more direct experience of God's presence going on. Maybe it's a promise. Maybe it's an immediate experience. But it, it, it shifts into the imperfect. So in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. The ESV translates it this way. My soul, so we're back to the soul. But as we saw in the first section, the soul is lacking. My soul thirsts. I'm thirsty for you. Now, my soul will be satisfied 
Now it's with food instead of thirst. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Uh, Luis, are you still in here? Is Luis still in here? So I had not heard the term nachos before. This This is not a Spanish pronunciation or something, is it? I don't know. But nachos, I'm pretty sure, or nachos, whatever they're called. I love to harass Luis if I get an opportunity. I'm only saying it because nachos, I'm pretty sure, are a fat and rich food. Uh, and it flows in abundance. So you just think, I mean, you're getting whatever. I mean, fat and rich food is the point of saying you have an abundance. You are not going to be hungry, right? So my soul be satisfied is with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with, and here we are back to the lips, joyful lips. So again, the imagery is pretty obvious and direct, and it's a beautiful part of the poem that I am thirsting for something in the first section, but I already have enough that I can pour praise back out to God. And in the second section, I'm receiving this abundance through my mouth. I'm, I'm being fed with rich and fat foods, and I am going to return the favor with praise to what God has given me. So praise with joyful lips. But in verse 6 it is, when I remember you, and remember when he's writing this, or the context in which we're supposed to understand him saying this prayer, is in the wilderness of Judea, fleeing from the son that wants to kill him. When I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the night watches. And it's been normal in the Psalms to this point, and I suspect it's the same meaning here, that the night watches are comparable, are, are set in contrast, I mean, to the daytime. So in the daytime, when everything's in the clear and everybody can see it, I'm praising God because of how abundantly He's blessed me, but also at night, when things are in darkness, when the threats are around us, when we can't see where the enemy is, I also praise you then. It may not be that, but I think it is that here. I think that's the point because he's in the wilderness of Judea, and yet he's describing lying down upon his bed. The context of both of these sections is pretty specific. In verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Here I am, my soul is needy, but I remember when I looked upon you in the sanctuary, and so I have a reason to praise. And now he says, and now my soul being satisfied fully with you, I'm reclining upon my bed, and I remember, I meditate on you in the watches of the night, even when surrounded by the darkness. And now he has descended from Jerusalem down toward the Jordan River. That's where it says he ends up finding comfort. It's when he arrives at the Jordan River, which is way, way, I mean, this is towards the Dead Sea. This is way, way, way below Jerusalem. So he has descended along the path. And in that journey, there's all kinds of dangers around them. They're fleeing an enemy who may be chasing them immediately. It's part of the, the, uh, uh, the work that they do to plot for uh, the end of the conspiracy against him. But in all of that, they're on their way down to Jordan. So in this wilderness where it's dangerous and they're on their way down to the Dead Sea or to the Jordan River, at least toward the Dead Sea, he describes it as lying down in a bed and in that bed being able to meditate on the Lord's presence in those night watches and singing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand. So we're back to the hand, but now it's not my hands being raised up to you. It's your hand lifting, upholding me. So when my soul has abundance, I can still respond in praise and my memory of God, my awareness of His presence is still real, and I'm experiencing, and sort of the way the psalm reads, it's like, 
you know, I, I remember at the beginning of the psalm, he's saying, you know, I remember being in your power and presence, but now I'm out in the wilderness thirsting. And then the second section is, but once I remembered while I was in the wilderness thirsting that I had been in your power and presence, then suddenly I realized I was full and satisfied. And in the night watches, while I'm down here toward the wilderness or in the wilderness, in the night watches, I recall you and I praise you and I celebrate the fact that your hand is lifting me up. Now, I'm saying, I, I just want to convey this to us in the context of starting this semester in this way real quickly. Uh, we think of ourselves again, and especially as, as students, and especially as young students. And this is, you know, this is our biggest incoming class in the last four, five, six years, something like that. I've forgotten the exact number, but before COVID, since before COVID. It's the most students that we've had in the dorm. And most of you are young, like really young. And so we're checking IDs to see if you should even be here, you know. Uh, so, and praise the Lord. I mean, we, that's what we've been praying for. It's what we've, been, what we've been working and praying for for years. And so we're delighted to be able to serve you in this way. But the way you think of your life is that this is just a transition. And it is. It's a huge transition from being a high school student to being an adult where you have a career and you're moving forward in your life. You know, that's a huge transition. And the, 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 the uh, joint in between, the, the bridge between those two is where you see yourself. So I'm, I'm in this in-between state, right? Well, here's the thing. You're part of the people of God. If you're not, we really need to talk after chapel. Uh, something was misunderstood about your testimony or your sense of calling from God on your life. So you're part of the people of God. That means your whole life is in transition. The entire time you're here, God is always going to be putting you in a place where things are going to change because this ain't your home. This is not where we're supposed to be. Now, I don't mean the earth, the planet. I mean this kingdom, this world around us. The last thing in the world we want to do is just equip you to become satisfied with the way the world is right now. What we want to do is equip you to be somebody who's going to be chased through the wilderness the rest of your life. But as you're chased through the wilderness, realize that you're not alone. Not only are you accompanied by the people of God, you're accompanied by the Messiah. You're accompanied by the power and glory of God. This is part of the reality of your life. So as you, as you look at this semester and you think, oh, if I, if I can just get through this semester, everything will be good. This semester is the place where you're supposed to find the satisfaction and fullness of God's presence in the work that you're doing right now as a student. Not doing the work as a student so that eventually you can do something important this is your opportunity to return praise to God, just as you'll have that opportunity when you graduate, and you'll have that opportunity when you're serving in this school or that ministry or that clinic or wherever it is that you're going to end up. And so this reality of the people of God identifying with the Messiah who's in the wilderness, Jesus is not occasionally in the wilderness. Jesus is not occasionally wandering. Jesus' entire ministry is spent going from one village to the next. You know, they throw him off a cliff or he's finished there and just moves on to the next one. They want to throw him off a cliff, right? He just passes through the midst. That, that, that's not accidental. That's him identifying with the people of Israel. This is not our home. This village is not my home. When somebody says, I'm going to follow you, what does he say? Mm, 
I don't think you understand what that means. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I don't even have a place to lay my head. That's not an accidental characteristic of the Messiah. And he said it was an essential characteristic of somebody who'd be willing to follow him. So much so he does it three times in a row with different illustrations, right? So this is the point. We're on the journey that God wants us to be on. And we're in a land where we're going to sense a thirst for God's presence because we don't see it, but we can remember it. And in remember it, understand that we are always filled to abundance with that presence. And then you get to the last portion of the psalm, the last three verses, and it says, But those who seek to destroy my life, so finally we can get down to some judgment, finger pointing, tell those people out there what's wrong with them, right? That would be missing the point. But those who seek to destroy my life, the Messiah prays first. David prays, the Messiah prays, the people of Israel pray, we the people of God pray. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. The contrast is obvious. He's been cast out of his throne city, out of Jerusalem, and he's descended the mountain, and now he's descending all the way down to the Jordan River, and he's descending constantly away from what others would perceive as the presence of God, but which he's reminded us hasn't left him at all. In fact, he has rested, in verse 7, in the shadow of God's wings, so that no matter where he goes, he has that presence of God protecting him, in verse 7. So in verse 9, the contrast is obvious. Those who seek to destroy my life, now let's be clear, this is Absalom, his son, who seeks to destroy his life. Even if it's Saul, his king, who seeks to destroy his life, the conclusion is the same. It's somebody he knows. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Now if we read that and we say, see, we can be judgmental. I will just remind you that David put those words in a poem, not in an attack. And in fact, remember, David is so against the attack. Now, I'm not, even, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist. We can talk about that all later. But we need to remember this about Christ. We need to remember this about our enemies. And we need to remember this about what even David experienced. When David is handed Saul on a platter, right, comes into the cave, and he's, you know, vulnerable, to say the least, David refuses to rise against him, is somewhat ashamed that he's even willing to cut off a little piece of his garment, you know? No, that's not mine to do. He's the Lord's anointed. I'll let the Lord take care of him, even though the Lord had rejected him. Samuel knew the Lord had rejected him. David knew the Lord had rejected him. But David wouldn't accept that it was his responsibility to displace Saul. He never replaced him at all. By the way, the person he replaced was Jonathan. Different story. And Jonathan gave it to him freely. The point is, he doesn't want to kill Saul. More importantly, and you think, oh, that's weird, isn't it? Well, maybe it's because he's king and he just respects authority. Absalom's not king. Absalom has no respect for authority whatsoever. Absalom has embarrassed David and the family and is now chasing David in the wilderness. And remember, when he finally gets word that Absalom has been killed in the wilderness, all he does is lament about it so much that his captains come and say, you act like you didn't even want to be protected. 
and that the people who gave their lives to defend you were wasting their time, and you're going to lose these followers if you don't go ahead and celebrate the death of your son. And all David can say is, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died in your place? Because David is what we should be, you know, like the Messiah. And so it says, as he, as he describes this, He's in a bed in the wilderness, descended from Jerusalem, but sheltered under the wing of God and rejoicing that he has praise for the presence of God. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life, they'll go below this, down to the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the power of the sword, the thing I'm protected from by the wing of God. They'll be a portion for jackals, the thing I don't have to worry about because God is protecting me. The king, in contrast to them, will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will be praising, exulting, for the mouths of liars will be stopped in God's hand. There's the mouth again. It's the liars, though, and this time, instead of praise flowing out because of God's presence, they are stopped in their lies. And that is the difference between being God's people and everybody else. It's not a celebration of the destruction of other people. Even God himself says we're not supposed to do that. It is a reminder of what sets us apart as the people of God. Not that we've arrived, not that we're in a place of constant material abundance. The difference is that no matter where, even when we've been cast out, even when we're wandering from one place to the next, we wander there with the immediate presence, power, and glory of God. And with all of his provision, bread in abundance, drink in abundance, because he is the one we need. We have all of that. That's what we celebrate. And for convocation, this is what we're saying. Lord, you have set us on a journey for this semester. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what's going to happen with it. We don't know the points at which the enemy becomes our professor. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't know how any of that's going to transpire. What we do know is that the Lord is still going to be guiding you. He's still going to be with you, and he's still going to be providing for you. And therefore, we will still have a reason to praise him for what he does. Father, I pray that you would bless the time that we're about to have now as we first gather and dedicate ourselves to you and to each other. And then, as we worship on the way out of the room, and Lord, we pray that all of this would bring honor to you this whole semester, and that you would indeed, as Moses prayed, that you indeed would strengthen, would establish the work of our hands. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.